Hey, let's start with this, Genesis 43. That's where we are today. Genesis 43, we're continuing on this study of the life of Joseph out of the Old Testament. Speaking of the Old Testament, one of my favorite things in the Old Testament, Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that great? I also love the story there in the Old Testament where King David, he seeks out the grandson of his enemy and he invites him to his table and treats him like one of his sons. Over in the gospels, I love the story of what we call the prodigal son, the young man who essentially said to his dad, hey, I just wanna go ahead and pretend you're dead, so you go ahead and give me my inheritance. And he goes out and he squanders it right on reckless living. And then what does the father do? The whole time he's fattening up a calf. He's preparing for the day that his son will come home and there's gonna be a celebration and a gathering around the table. We get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and we read that there's another table coming one day. There's another celebration. There's another feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb where all the redeemed, the sons and daughters of God are gonna gather together for that celebration. Listen, I'm telling you the imagery of us gathered around God's table, the imagery of God having a feast for his people is all throughout the scriptures. But here's the deal. If you want a seat at God's table of grace, you have to sit yourself down. Now, I didn't say yourself one word. I'm saying that as two words. If you want a seat at God's table of grace, you're going to have to sit yourself down. Self has to go down. Your your trust in self, your self-righteousness, your hope in self, your confidence in self, your reliance on yourself. Self is going to have to sit down. And Genesis chapter 43 paints a picture, I think, for us of what it looks like when a person sits self down. Genesis chapter 43, here we go. To sit yourself down, you gotta admit three things. Number one is this, you gotta admit, I cannot go on living like this. Those words ever come out of your mouth? I can't go on living like this. This is it, I can't do this anymore. Maybe that's where you are today. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, to be at that place I can't go on living like this. Let's look at the text, Genesis 43, one says, but the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. Now this is Jacob essentially saying, I can't go on living like this. This is an attitude change from Jacob from where we left off in chapter 42. If you were here last week, maybe you remember, and if you weren't, I'll remind you, in chapter 42, Jacob sent all of his sons except one by the name of Benjamin to Egypt to get food. And lo and behold, the guy who's in charge of the food distribution is their brother Joseph that they had sold 20 years earlier as a slave, threw him in a pit, sold him as a slave. He ends up in Egypt. They just figure he's probably dead and gone. And so they have to stand before him to get grain, to get food, and they don't recognize him. He's grown up in the time that he's been in Egypt, but he certainly recognizes them. And so here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna try to test their hearts to see are they the same old scoundrels they've always been. And so he says, here's what I'm gonna do. You've told me you've got this little brother 
And, and so to prove that you're not spies here checking out the land of Egypt, you're going to give me one of your brothers. He gave Simeon. Simeon's going to stay here in prison with me. The rest of you go back to your homeland and get your little brother and bring him back here. And so they go back home and they tell their father, Jacob, hey, listen, there's a hostage situation going on. He's not going to give us any more food unless the next time we show up, we bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob digs his heels in and he says, over my dead body. I've already lost one son. I'm not going to take a chance on losing another son. We're just going to stay here and die if that's what we're going to do. But in chapter 43, something is changing now. Verse 1 says, but the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. Jacob's now beginning to realize, I can't keep doing this. I cannot keep living this way. The famine's only getting worse. People are dying. I'm going to die. My children are going to die. My grandchildren are going to die. Verse 2 says, when the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, go back and buy us a little more food. Self reliance on self, confidence in self, hope in self. Self is beginning to sit down now. Jacob is essentially saying, I cannot go on living like this. It's an admission of desperation. It's an admission that something's got to change. Maybe that's even why you're here today. Because you know, I just can't keep living the way I'm living. And, and maybe there's an answer over there at that church, right? I, I need to find out because I can't keep living the way that I've been living. I hope that if you've never gotten to that place, that maybe today you would, where yourself begins to sit down and you begin to think, I can't, I can't keep going this way. Can't keep living this way. Life with my plan, life according to my terms, isn't working and isn't going to work. That's a humbling thing. To have to admit, I thought I could do this, I was wrong. I thought I could navigate this, I was wrong. I thought I could control this, I was wrong. I thought I could fix this, I was wrong. And now I can't, and I can't go on living this way. That's the beginning of sitting yourself down. You have to admit that. Second thing you have to admit is this, I have no other way. There is no other way. The one on the throne in Egypt, Joseph, He's laid out the way. If you want to live, here's the terms. If you want salvation from famine, here's the way. And there's going to be no other way. This is how it's going to happen. Listen, the one on the throne, he's the one that gets to set the terms. The one who holds your life in the palm of his hands, he's the one that gets to set the terms. The starving beggars who have nothing to bring to the table, you have no chips with which to negotiate with. You have nothing. The one on the thrones made it clear, here's the way you can be saved. And then one of the other brothers named Judah, and I love that it's Judah, because I've told you before, Judah is the line from which Jesus is going to come from. His younger brother Joseph is the type or the foreshadowing of what Jesus is like. And verse 3 says, Judah speaks up and he says to his father, the man was serious when he warned us, you won't see my face again unless your brother's with you. If you send Benjamin with us, dad, we'll go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. In other words, it'll be a waste of our time. He's told us the way. 
He's told us the terms. Remember, he said, the man said, you won't see my face again unless your brother's with you. And Jacob says, why were you so cruel to me? He moaned. Why did you tell him you had another brother? Why'd you have to tell him that? Why'd you guys have to give so much information? Why'd you have to run your mouth? And here's what I want to say. Look, it's really sad when you see an older follower of God still immature spiritually. Don't make the mistake here today that just because you're getting old, that that means you're becoming more like Jesus. Gray hair, no hair, walkers and canes and all that kind of stuff is not evidence that you're growing in maturity in your walk with God. Jacob's an old man now. He's been a follower of Yahweh for a long time, but he's not maturing. He's still, in many ways, very immature. He's had decades, decades to learn to trust God. He hasn't learned that. He's had decades to learn to see the world vertically, not just horizontally. Look at everything that's happening around me. Look at these circumstances. He's had decades to learn to look up and to say, God, what are you doing? What are you saying? What are you showing me? What are you teaching me? You see, what Jacob should have done is he should have called his sons together and said, hey, guys, I don't know what to do. And this is beyond our control. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to lift our eyes up. We're going to look to the Lord from where our help comes from. We're going to pray. We're going to trust him. We're going to believe him. He doesn't do that. Mom, dad, meemaw, people, that's the most important thing we could be teaching our boys and girls right now is don't just look with horizontal eyes, right? But let's have a vertical view. Let's have a curiosity about what is God doing here? What is God saying? What is God teaching? What is God declaring? What is God up to here? But Jacob's self is beginning to crumble. Look at verse eight. Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we'll be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation, and not only we, but you and our little ones. Judah says, I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. You know what Judah's doing, by the way? He's preaching a gospel. He's declaring to his father, there is a way of salvation. There's a way to be saved. There's a way to be rescued. But we have to do it the way the one on the throne has prescribed. That's the only way. We have to do what he's telling us to do. So listen, to sit yourself down, you have to do three things. You have to admit three things. I can't go on like this anymore. There's only one way the way of the one on the throne. And thirdly, the third admission is, I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself. Look at verse 11. So their father Jacob finally said to them, if it can't be avoided, then at least do this. Pack your bags with the best products of this land. Take them down to the man as gifts, balm, honey, gum, aromatic resin, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Also take double the money that was put back in your sacks as it was probably someone's mistake. Then take your brother, and go back to the man and may God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man so that he will release Simeon 
and let Benjamin return. Watch this. But if I must lose my children, so be it. And those words are the death blow to Jacob's self. At the end of chapter 42, he was hanging on tight, right, to those kids. He was hanging on tight to Benjamin. But now he says, I can't save myself. Whatever happens is up to the Lord. So be it. If I let Benjamin go to Egypt, I might never see him again. Or I might, and we're all saved. But if I hold on to Benjamin, we're all going to perish. I can't save myself. I can't change anything about this situation. Jacob, the con man, finds himself in a situation that he cannot con himself out of this time. Jacob, the hustler, finds himself in a situation that he cannot hustle his way out of this time. He's always found a way, hasn't he, to land on his feet. But there is no earth left now beneath his feet on which to land. This time he knows, I can't go on like this. There is no other way. I cannot save myself. His self begins to sit down. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're coming to the end of that road of self, hope in self, confidence in self. Maybe today you're coming to that place that you have to make this admission. And that's a good thing, a really good thing. I can't go on like this. There's only one way out, the one on the throne. I can't save myself. Now, here's the good news. When self sits down, grace stands up. (laughs) When self takes a seat, grace stands up. Let me show you what grace does. Number one, grace opens the front door. Not the back door, not the side door. Grace opens the front door and lets you in. Look at verse 15. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and doubled the money, headed off with Benjamin. They finally arrived in Egypt, presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, watch, these men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside. Do you see that? Now, hey, I'm gonna let them sit on the porch. Now we're gonna put out there a blanket out under the shade tree. No, he says, take them inside. This is what grace does. Grace takes you in. Take them inside the palace, he said. Then go slaughter an animal and prepare a big feast. So the man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's palace. Everybody else was lining up in the bread line. But these scoundrels are walking through the front door of the palace to get meat, not just grain. Everybody else is getting grain, but they're going to sit down in the palace and have bacon-wrapped filet. It's in there, I'm pretty sure. Check it out. Dig a little deeper. See, here's what grace does. Grace opens up the front door and invites you in and serves you the best. Not what's left over. Serves you the very best. This is what grace does. Grace throws a party in your honor. You don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. That's what grace does. It throws a party in your honor. That's what Joseph is doing here. These punks have sold him as a slave. Their own brother. They wished him to be dead. 
And now when their lives are in the palm of his hands, now when the table is turned, instead of doling out justice to his brothers, he gives grace. He swings wide the front door and he opens them, opens it up, invites them in, serves them the best, throws a party in their honor. Does that sound familiar? The Lord, my shepherd, prepares a table before me the one whose sins are many. Like the king, he invites me to sit at his table like one of his sons. Like the prodigal who's ran away for so long, he throws a party when I set my eyes on home again. I have a place reserved at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is by grace and grace alone. It is by grace that you're saved through faith, that not of yourself. When self sits down, grace stands up, opens the front door, invites you in, serves the best there is, throws a party in your honor. And number two, that's all number one. Number two, grace doesn't want anything in return. Look at verse 18. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken into Joseph's house. It's because of the money somebody put in our sacks last time we were here. They said, he plans to pretend that we stole it. Then he will seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. That's right, Sherlock. You've cracked the case. This is all about the prime minister of Egypt stealing your scrawny donkeys. Because that's what he needs. Verse 19, the brothers approached the manager of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance to the palace. Sir, they said, we came to Egypt once before to buy food, but as we're returning home, we stopped for the night and opened our sacks. And then we discovered that each man's money, the exact amount paid, was in the top of his sack. Here it is. We brought it back with us. We also have additional money to buy more food. We have no idea who put our money in our sacks. And and Joseph's manager, he's in on all this, right? And he says, relax, don't be afraid. I love that. When you're in the house of grace, that's the theme in the house of grace. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The household manager said, don't be afraid, relax. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure into your sacks. I know I received your payment. And then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. Joseph's manager refuses to take anything for this feast that they're about to enjoy. They have not earned it. They cannot purchase it. They cannot buy a place at the table. They've got honey, they've got pistachios, and they got some scrawny donkeys. That's it. They are broken beggars who are about to feast in the palace of the very one they've betrayed. Does that sound familiar to you? It's the story within the story. It's all grace. What are we saying? Grace opens the front door, invites you in, throws a party, serves the best, doesn't want anything in return. And then... Grace cleans you up and provides for your scrawny donkey. This is where I kind of wish I was preaching out of King James because I would have had some fun with that moment, but I'd have gotten in trouble for being a little silly. So we went with a modern translation here, but he's providing for their needs for their donkey here. Verse 24, the manager then led the men into Joseph's palace. He gave them water to wash their feet. Hello. And provided feed. For their donkeys, grace 
wash them clean. Grace washed their feet. Story within story. Here's what grace does. It opens the front door. It invites you in, throws you a party, serves you the best, doesn't want anything in return, cleans you up, provides for your needs. And then grace looks at you and calls you son or daughter. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts they had brought him and then bowed low to the ground before him. After greeting them, he asked, how's your father? The old man you spoke about, is he still alive? Yes, they replied, our father, your servant is alive and well. And they bowed low again. Then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. This is his only fully biological sibling, right? He says, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about, Joseph asked. And then he looks at Benjamin. He says, may God be gracious to you, my son. It's so good. And then I want to see what happens next. And then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. You know what's happening here? 20 years of pain comes rushing out of him. 20 years of pain, hurt, wounds, abuse, abandonment, being forgotten, It all comes pouring out of Joseph in this moment. Here's what this tells me. Only the grace giver truly knows what grace cost. Only the grace giver truly knows what grace cost. His brothers have no idea the price that has been paid for them to sit at that table. His brothers have no idea, no concept of just how high a price Joseph paid to be in this position where he can bestow grace. They would not be able to wrap their minds around what it did to a young teenager to be thrown into a pit begging for his life and have his brothers just laughing and eating their lunch while they hoped him to be dead. They have no idea the price that it had taken on Joseph mentally, emotionally, psychologically to be sold as a slave. The things that he suffered, the things that he endured, everything that he's gone through, they have no idea the horrors that he has endured. They will never know the cost, but the one who gives grace knows, knows what it's cost. Joseph's heart can't take it, and he rushes out. He withdraws to a solitary place where he's all alone. And he's heaving and grieving, weeping and sobbing. Reminds you of anybody? There is another who's on the front end of giving great grace and knows already what it will cost him. Those who will receive that grace have no idea what it's going to cost him, still don't. What it would cost him to have his father turn his back on him for the one and only time in all of eternity. But the one who will give the greatest grace ever known to mankind, he knows the cost of that grace. And like Joseph, he withdraws to a solitary place to be all alone. 
collapses on top of a rock, heaving and grieving, sobbing and weeping, praying and sweating and bleeding. Because the one who gives grace is the only one who truly knows what grace costs. Joseph's brothers sit there at the table and it all seems like it's free. But grace isn't free. But only the one who gives it knows and knows what it truly costs. What are we saying today? I'm saying when we sit ourselves down, grace stands up and grace opens the front door, invites us in, serves the very best, throws us a party, doesn't want anything in return, cleans us up, provides for our needs, calls his son or daughter. Grace alone knows what grace costs. Number six, grace knows who you are. The real you. Grace knows the you that you try to let nobody else know. Grace knows who you are but loves you anyway. Look at verse 31. After washing his face, he came back out, keeping himself under control. And then he ordered, bring out the food. The waiters served Joseph at his own table and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table because Egyptians despise Hebrews and refused to eat with them. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit. Let me run. They don't know who this is. He knows them. Grace knows you. Still loves you. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit. And to their amazement, he seated them according to age. From oldest to youngest, to their amazement, this blew their minds. There's 11 of these guys. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, good guess, y'all. You got to remember, these guys didn't all have the same mama. Some of them were born within months of each other. Some of them might have born within weeks of each other. 11 people, there could have been millions of different, do the math on that. I'm not kidding you. There could be millions of different seating arrangements that could have panned out that day, but it went down exactly in their birth order and the brothers' minds are blown. How in the world did it happen perfect like this? Here's how, because grace knows who you are and doesn't run you away from the table. Grace knows who you are and puts your name on the little reservation card at your plate. Grace knows who you are and loves you anyway. Verse 34, and Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. And so they feasted. And they drank freely with him. I love those two words, by the way, church, with him. They're eating bacon-wrapped filet from the prime minister's table. Of all the people in Egypt on that day, These are the least deserving to be there. They're the least deserving to be at that table. 
and they have no idea the one who has put them there, who is raking out food from his table, the best, the choicest in all the land. They have no idea he is the one we hated. He is the one we scorned. He is the one we sinned against. He is the one we sold. He is the one that we abused. He is the one that we betrayed. They don't know it, but Joseph knows it. And he still loves them. That's grace. Grace knows everything about you and still loves you. Some of you today are struggling to forgive yourself, to love yourself, and I'm telling you, Jesus isn't struggling with that. That's grace. Grace is standing for you today. So why don't you sit yourself down and admit to him today, I can't and won't and don't want to go on living like I've been living. I know there's no other way but you, Jesus. I cannot save myself. And when you and I sit our self down, we will find that his grace has been standing the whole time. Why don't we sit our self down today? Let's pray. God, we bow our hearts before you. Like Joseph's brothers bowed before him, we bow before you. Because we, we don't deserve the air we're breathing. We don't deserve what you keep raking off of your plate onto ours. We don't deserve you. It's all grace. But the reality is God today, self keeps getting in the way. Stubbornness pride in the way. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I, and I'm thinking that, and I want to talk to you men. In fact, all the dudes, just look up here. Let's just talk for a minute. Ladies, you're not a dude. Put your face down. Just Guys. Think about this, gentlemen. Jacob's family was saved. Their future was secured because one day Jacob sat himself down and grabbed on to grace. So, why are you talking to the guys, Pastor? Because I think, guys, we struggle with this more. Amen, gentlemen. Pride, arrogance. I can do it, I can fix it, I can make it, I can figure this out. And gentlemen, I think we just need to own it today that we don't want to keep living the way we're living. When are we going to embrace our God-given responsibility to lead those around us to not just merely look at the world horizontally, but to get, begin to look vertically with faith? I don't, I don't have all the answers, honey. 
I don't know how to solve this. I, I don't know where this path's going to lead. I, I can't fix this. But together, we're going to lift our eyes up to the Lord. And we're going to trust him. And we're going to believe. And we're going to seek his face. Men, our families don't need guys that have all the answers. They need men who know that the answer is Jesus and Jesus alone. So gentlemen, as we begin to go into this week where next Sunday people will be thinking about guys for one day out of the year, I guess. What if we were different this week? What if we just left self sitting in these dirty chairs today and walked out of here holding on to the hem of the garment of the grace giver for dear life. God, would you change our hearts today? Starting with guys like this stubborn, arrogant preacher. God, you are calling men to lead the way, to sit ourselves down and trust in your grace. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. Men, men, maybe you just want to come and pray here today. There's altars, steps, chairs. If you just want to say, I'm leaving self here today, Let's do that.